Okay, John chapter 1, 1 to 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. His, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus came to bring grace and truth. Father, because without him we would be lost. And we thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross, to show us the Father, and to Help us to live our lives each day. Father, we ask that you will be with Tom, that you will speak through him to each one of us. We pray that our hearts would be receptive and that we would go out praising and exalting you, seeking to live our lives in conformity with your will and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. We have a marvelous task this morning. It would be daunting if it weren't so beautiful, and that is to revisit some of the great lessons from these 21 chapters in the Gospel of John that are filled with the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. If you're the type who uh, listens better if you're taking notes, then have at it. But if not, I would, I would suggest that you just listen this morning. There are three goals in my heart this morning. The first is that any who have not come to trust in Jesus Christ will know what God commands you to believe in order that you may have eternal life. The second is sort of the flip side. It's the believer's version of the first. And that is, I pray that you will walk away confident that you can present God's case for Christ to a non-Christian very comprehensively, armed with nothing more than the Gospel of John and the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to do something this morning that you usually don't see me do, and that is that I'm not going to stray from the Gospel of John. I'm not going to try to tie in a bunch of other Scriptures. The only other Scriptures I intend to 
mention are those that John mentions from the Old Testament. There are a few of those that will come in this morning. And I'm doing it that way because I want you to understand that the, that the points that we will cover this morning are all found right here in these 21 chapters. This is an amazing resource to you as a believer as you desire to be used of God to introduce other people to Jesus. The third goal also to believers is that all of us who already trust in Jesus may walk away filled with greater adoration, gratitude, and love for our wonderful Savior that compels us to joyfully carry on with the work that He handed to His first 11 disciples and that He has given to every follower of Jesus after those 11. John's Gospel, his account of God's case for Christ, if you will, is John's witness concerning the Father's witness to His Son. John is simply recounting many facets of that testimony that God has provided concerning the identity and the work of Jesus. The central proclamation of this Gospel is that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the long-promised Messiah and Savior, that He is eternal God made man, and that He died on a cross and was raised from the dead to save condemned sinners and to bring all who believe in Him into union with God together with one another. Now that's a real mouthful, but we'll, we'll look at the parts of that as we proceed this morning. John does not waste any time cutting to the chase in this Gospel. Knowing that what he is presenting is scandalous to the religious establishment of his day, just as it is to many today, John confronts us in the first few verses with the proclamation that Jesus is the eternal Creator God. John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then he declares not only is Jesus the eternal God, but He is the Creator of all things. Verse 3, All things, all things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Is there any ambiguity there? Okay. The eternally existing Word by which God created everything that exists is God the Son. The second person of the Trinity. As we proceeded through this Gospel, we saw Jesus proclaim seven missional I Am's. These are statements Jesus made that could not be true if He were not God. Each of them declared something not only about who He is, but about what He came the first time to accomplish. He said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life and I am the true vine. In addition to those missional I am's, 
there are a number of points in the Gospel of John in which Jesus uses, uh, he, he makes statements that, that I and others call the absolute I ams. These are the instances in which Jesus applies to Himself the very covenant name of God that God gave to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses beheld God in the form of a, a bush on fire that was not consumed by the fire. And Moses, God told Moses to go and be his mouthpiece to free his people from bondage in Egypt. And Moses said, who shall I say sent me? And God said, tell them I am has sent you. The clearest of the statements of Jesus in, in that regard is in John chapter 8, verse 58. When Jesus said to the Jews, before Abraham existed, I am. They knew what He was saying and they picked up stones to slay Him, to stone Him to death, but it was not yet time for that. Jesus' words were vindicated by His works. John records a number of miracles that Jesus performed and then he also mentions, he tells us that there were countless other miracles. He said the world could not contain the list if he were to write all of them down. He's using hyperbole, but he's, he's making a very powerful point. There were lots and lots of miracles. Jesus turned 120 plus gallons of water into finest aged wine. I mentioned when we were in that passage, if you go Google instant wine mix, you come up with one hit and it's a joke. Jesus walked on water. He made a boat full of people instantly move from the middle of a large lake to the shore of the lake. He took food that was sufficient only for a few people and He fed tens of thousands of people with it. The number 5,000 applied only to the men. He eluded, he walked straight through crowds of people, mobs of people who were bent on grabbing him and killing him. And nobody even touched him until the time that he had ordained to be arrested. His spoken word sent demons fleeing in abject fear. Not only did he demonstrate his power over his creation, He demonstrated His absolute power over the curse. He healed blindness. He healed lameness. He healed every kind of illness. And He proved His power not only over the effects of the curse, but over the curse itself, which is death. He raised a man named Lazarus who had been decaying in the grave for four days. And then finally, He took up His own life that He had laid down as the perfect sacrifice for our sins and He rose from the grave. Beloved, anyone who says Jesus never claimed to be God apparently never read the Gospel of John, not even the first sentence. John's witness to the Father's witness goes much further than that. He declares that this one who is the eternal Creator God came to man and became man. More than 60 times in this Gospel, John uses phrases like He came down or was sent down from heaven or from the presence of the Father. This is a huge theme in the Gospel. 
But Jesus didn't just come for a visit. He became man and He lived among us. John 1.18 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He not only took on our humanity, but He showed us God. The rest of that verse, if you put the whole verse together, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Full of grace and truth. In John 1.18, which Paul just read, the very last verse of John's prologue, he said, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. In John chapter 14, verses 7 to 9, Jesus said to His disciples, if you had known Me, you would have known My Father also. And then He said, from now on, you do know Him and have seen Him. <laughs> because you know Me and have seen Me. And Philip, not quite getting it, said to him, Lord, show us the Father and that'll be enough for us. <laughs> Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you, Philip, and yet you have not come to know me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? One of the most foundational takeaways from this Gospel is this. Every person's response to Jesus is that person's response to God. Every person's response to Jesus is that person's response to God. In John 5.23, Jesus said, He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Many people claim to worship a true God or multiple gods. But friends, it is not possible to honor the one true God if you make Jesus out to be anything other than fully God and fully man. If we reinvent Jesus on our own terms and declare that He is a great teacher or a great prophet or a great example, or if we dismiss Him as a myth devised by men or even as a lunatic, then we we need to know that Jesus said to all who say such things, unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sins. Is there any ambiguity there? And friends, if you die in your sins, you will remain eternally, unredeemably condemned. How you respond to Jesus between today and the day that you breathe your last breath on this earth determines your eternal destiny. If it doesn't, Jesus is a liar. And I guarantee you, He is not. Jesus perfectly revealed God to man, but He didn't come merely to show us God. He died to bring us to God. The very first thing that John the Baptist proclaimed when he saw Jesus walking toward him was, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. <laughs> Friends, you will never, ever hear better news than that. 
Jesus came into this cursed world to save lost, rebellious sinners like you and me. And save He did. The last words that Jesus uttered as He gave up His Spirit to His Father on that cross were the words, it is finished. His death in our place was the one and only all-sufficient payment of the debt that we all owe to God because of our rebellion against Him, because of our violation of His holy character. There is no other provision. There is only Christ. His death in our place releases all who believe in Him from the judgment of eternal death that we each deserve. His death alone gives us eternal life. In John 5.24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My Word and believes Him who sent Me, in other words, whoever believes the witness of the Father to the Son, has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is already crossed over out of death into life. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) If there's ever cause for praise, it is that. The judgment Jesus is talking about in that verse is the eternal condemnation that we deserve. It is everlasting separation from the presence of God and from the glory of His power in a terrible place which is completely devoid of everything good because it is completely devoid of the presence of God. And friends, that is the default destiny of all mankind. Jesus raised that point in a fascinating way in chapter 3 in his conversation with Nicodemus. He pointed back to an event in Numbers chapter 21 in which the Israelites, because of their rebellion against God, had been bitten by venomous serpents. God told Moses to take a bronze emblem of a serpent and put it on a pole and to hold it up on a hill and any Israelite who had been bitten by the serpent that looked at that and kept his gaze fixed on that serpent lifted up would not die. Jesus alluded to that episode to explain to Nicodemus why he, Jesus, had to be lifted up on a cross. And you know why that is, friends? It's because we've all already been bitten. The venom of sin's curse is already in our veins and we are all destined to death. But Jesus was raised up on a cross and judged in our place to save us from the judgment that we deserved from God. When we put our trust in Him alone as the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, the only sufficient sacrifice for our sins, He redeems us from the curse of death forever. Instead of being destined to death, we receive the gift of eternal life. And you know what? We don't receive it later. We receive it now. We cross over out of death into life. Never to stand condemned in the eyes of our holy God again. In John 3.18, Jesus said, He who believes in Him is not judged. But whoever does not believe in Him has been judged already because he has not believed 
in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Those are the only two options. When we put our trust in Jesus alone, the curse is removed. We will all give account to God on the last day for the deeds that we have done during our short time on this cursed earth. But praise God for us who believe in Jesus, our works, our works will never qualify us to live with Him in His presence. Our one and only qualification is the perfect obedience and atoning death of Jesus in our place. Through faith in Him alone, we've already crossed over. When this physical body dies, it's not even an interruption to our spiritual life. It's just a transition. It's just a change of location. And it's a marvelous change. You don't have to go to Paul's letters to find that out. It's as clear as day right here in John's Gospel. So what has to happen for lost sinners to go from being spiritually dead and destined toward eternal death to being forever alive as redeemed sons of God? <laughs> well, the problem is that dead people don't have much to offer. So how do sinners who are spiritually dead, who are dead to God, become alive to God? John declares in the prologue that belief is the means by which we, we receive the light and life that Jesus embodies. Chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through Him and the world did not know Him. He came to His own and those who were His own did not receive Him. But as many as did receive Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. That is, to those who believe in His name. Those who receive Him are those who believe in His name. But what, what makes some men and women and children come to believe God's witness concerning the Son while others see that witness as utter foolishness or even rank blasphemy like the Pharisees and Jews did? Chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus helps clarify that. He says, uh, No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And in the next verse, He says, It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to Me. In His high priestly prayer in chapter 17, he said that those to whom He gives eternal life, those to whom Jesus gives eternal life are those whom the Father already gave to Him. And then He says again, He says, they were already yours, Father, and You gave them to Me. So to whom does Jesus give eternal life? To those whom the Father has already chosen. To those whom His Father draws to faith in Him. Now, I know that there's some difference 
and understanding on this point, and I love and respect those here who differ with me on this, but I have to preach it as I see it, and I believe that John's Gospel sets before us the inescapable conclusion that our faith is a miraculous work of God. That song that that Al opened us with, I know whom I have believed, talks about that very thing. (laughs) I believe we don't even get to pat ourselves on the back for believing in Jesus. Because I believe that is the work of God. We are united with God in Christ. What is this life? What is this life that we receive entirely by God's doing through faith in Jesus Christ? No other book of the Bible lays out the answer to that question more clearly or more powerfully than the Gospel of John. The life that God imparts to us in Christ is intimate, personal knowledge of the living God through union with Jesus. In other words, real life is relationship with Christ. That's real life. And that greatest prayer ever uttered on earth just before His arrest in John 17 Jesus prayed in the hearing of His disciples to His Father. And He made the most life-defining declaration that men have ever heard. In John 17.3, He said to His Father, this is eternal life. Drumroll. What is eternal life? That they may know You, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. You want to know what real life is? That's real life. Relationship with God in Christ. This is the single greatest gift ever given and it is the costliest gift ever given. Everlasting union together with all the saints, with our triune God, through our union with Jesus Christ. When God brings us into that union, He indwells us with His own Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. The Spirit takes up residence in these earthen vessels and He makes us bearers of God in this world. And He stays with us every minute of our earthly lives. Beloved, Please hear this. If you believe in Jesus as your Savior and you don't feel the nearness of God, I have really good news for you. God hasn't gone anywhere. We come to that kind of a mindset and, and an inclination of the heart where we, we, are, we are in despair because we don't feel the presence of God. And you know how that happens? It happens when our faith is driven by our feelings instead of our feelings being driven by our faith. We must trust in the unshakable promise of the God who cannot lie when He says these things to us. Listen to what He says. He made a beautiful promise to His disciples in John 14. He was about to die and then on the third day be raised from the dead and about 40 days after that He was going to ascend from earth to heaven to return to His rightful place at His Father's side. And He said, 
to those 11 men whom he loved with a love that was purer and better than any they had ever known. He said to them, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And then he promised, he promised to send his Holy Spirit to indwell every believer. And because our triune God is indivisible, He promised that He and His Father would be there too. Right here. He said, we will, we will make our dwelling with you. In the person of the indwelling Holy Spirit, Jesus says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Beloved, if you don't feel His presence, you need to know God hasn't gone anywhere. Jesus laid down His life to bring us to God and to bring God to us. There's this astonishing statement in the end of chapter 1. I didn't even comment on it when we came to it the first time. and I kind of regret that, but honestly, when I came to it, I, it, I couldn't even find the words because this is such an unfathomable declaration. But this feels like my last chance, so I'm going to talk about it. Jesus had had a conversation with Nathaniel, and Nathaniel started out skeptical, and then Nathaniel came to believe in Jesus because Jesus knew stuff about him that only God could know. And so Nathaniel said to, to Jesus, You are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. <laughs> and what did Jesus say to him? Look at John chapter 1. Right at the end, verses 50 and 51, Jesus said, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe you shall see greater things than these? And then He said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you shall see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You know where that comes from? Turn back to Genesis chapter 28. Jesus 2,000 years ago was looking 2,000 years before that at a, at a promise, at a vision actually, that Jacob, the father of the nation of Israel, had beheld. It was a vision of the pre-incarnate Christ. Jacob, in chapter 28, verse 12, beheld a ladder in this vision that was set on the earth with with its top reaching to heaven. And he saw the angels of God ascending and descending on that ladder. And at the top of the ladder, he saw Yahweh. And now Jesus in John 1.51 says to Nathaniel, I'm that ladder. I am that ladder between earth and heaven. I am that, that connection between men and God. Jesus is the one who reconciles the things in earth with the things in heaven. That's what He promises to do the next time He comes. But He accomplished that at the cross. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through Him. Jesus died to bring us to God and He died to bring God to us. 
In John 17, Jesus asked His Father to make all of us who trust in Him one. Us. One. Just as He and His Father are one. The Father and the Son, the Son and the Father, and us all together as one in Him through our union with Christ. To steal a phrase from one dear brother, this is the magnificent mystery. It is the grandest and most transcendental reality that we will ever know. Beloved, in eternity past, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit enjoyed a perfect relationship, a perfect union, and love, and communion, and fellowship. And now, in the person of Jesus Christ, God has brought us into that relationship. He has brought us into that relationship. We don't become the fourth person of the Trinity. We are in Christ who has always been God. And in Him, in our union with Him, we're brought into that. In Jesus, we have been made heirs of the unspeakably gracious promise that's woven throughout God's Word from cover to cover. The promise that He would redeem a people from bondage to sin and from the curse of sin to be His own treasured possession. To be His everlasting inheritance. His promise that He will dwell in our midst and He will be our God and we will be His people forever. That union is real life. And there is no other. Everything else that claims to be life is a really crummy imitation. That's real life. And because we've been drawn into that marvelous union with God, we now find ourselves united in an eternal relationship with each other. And God intends that the very same love that He showered upon us in Christ will overflow through us to each other. Three times in this Gospel, Jesus commanded His disciples to love one another just as He had loved them. And the third time He gave them that command, He immediately added, if the world hates you, you know it hated Me before it hated you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, our love for one another in the body of Christ is mission critical. It's critical because it shows the world whose we are. By this they will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. And it shows the world who He is. In that prayer in John 17, He said he prayed to His Father that we may be one even as He and His Father are one. And then He said, so that the world may know that you sent Me. You ever realize that there's an evangelistic power in our love for each other? In Christ. That's what Jesus said. And it's also mission critical because it binds our hearts together in the midst of the persecution that we will absolutely experience if we are truly following Jesus. The slave is not greater than the master. If we're in this 
battle with Him, the world will hate us because it hated Him. Some of us are finally starting to get that over here in the West. To the extent that the world has not hated us, it's because we have not been following Christ. That love that binds us together for this battle in which we wake up behind enemy lines every day is a love that God produces in us. All we're doing is responding to His love for us in Christ. And that just overflows. We love Him because He first loved us and we love one another because He first loved us. There is no way to overstate the importance, beloved, of our love for each other. We who have received the witness of Jesus through faith now bear that same witness to this cursed world. In John 15, Jesus said to His disciples, John 15, verses 26 and 27. He said, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness of Me, and you will bear witness of Me also, because you have been with Me from the beginning. A little earlier in that same chapter, He said, You did not choose Me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain that whatever you ask of the Father in My name, He may give to you. Every wonderful, miraculous, beautiful part of what we've been talking about this morning, you and I have been left here on this earth to set before this world. This world full of desperately Needful people. We have the greatest job anyone has ever been handed. We bear a message that is empowered by God to be the most transforming gift ever given. Here's my, my one breaking of my promise. My one New Testament reference outside of John. It's from Romans 1 verse 16. The Gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Those were the only two. Those two categories covered every human being. Okay. The Gospel, empowered by the Holy Spirit, will pierce the hearts of lost sinners and will draw them out of death and darkness into life and light and into this union with Jesus Christ that we enjoy. That's why God left us here. There's one last lesson from this beautiful Gospel that I pray with all my heart we will not forget. And that is that we are utterly dependent every minute of every day on the One who saved us. It's impossible to overstate the depth of that dependence. Jesus over and over <laughs> proved to His own disciples that they were unworthy of Him and unqualified for the assignment. The Gospel of John 
like the other Gospels, will not leave you impressed with Peter or John or James or Andrew or Philip or any of the other disciples. It will do the opposite. It will leave you wondering why Jesus would ever have left such a sacred mission in the hands of such deeply flawed men. And beloved, it's supposed to bring us to that conclusion about them so that it will bring us to that conclusion about us. The only impressive person in this Gospel is Jesus. The only one worthy or able to give life to dead people is Jesus. And you know what that means? It means we have to follow Him. Our days have to be filled with the beholding of Him. Our hearts and our words have to be filled with prayerful, humble dependence on Him. He is our all in all. Brothers and sisters, the key to your usefulness to God is not the precision of your theological system. It is not the measure of the strength of your will or of the consistency of your spiritual disciplines. It is not even the quality and quantity of your faith. The key to your usefulness to God is your prayerful, humble dependence on the One who alone makes you useful. So follow Him. He's your one legitimate obsession. The way to run this race, brothers and sisters, is to fix your eyes completely and only on the author and perfecter of faith. Setting aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles, fix your eyes on the author and perfecter of faith. And in Him you will find everything that you need to be the instrument of God to accomplish eternal good in the hearts of the people around you. Everything that you need. If you walk away with nothing else in your heart and mind from our year-long study of John's Gospel, I pray that it will be this. I pray this will be your grid for knowing whose you are and why God has left you here and why you wake up in the morning I pray this truth will rule your heart and your mind and your words and your actions all of your days on this earth and that it will rule mine. And that is that the only life that qualifies to be called life, the only life that constitutes true well-being now and abides into eternity is intimate, personal relationship with our loving and merciful Creator God together with all the saints through our union with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is real, eternal life. Dear Father, by the work of Your Holy Spirit who breathed these words written by John out, we have been blessed over these many months to behold Jesus even more fully and personally than if we had walked this earth with Him 2,000 years ago like those first disciples did. That's the power of Your Spirit working through Your Word. I pray that beholding Him will leave us forever changed, ever more grateful to You, 
more in awe of our Savior, more eager to follow Him joyfully wherever He leads so that You may be glorified in these earthen vessels. I pray this in the name, the incomparable name of Jesus. Amen.